Hello and welcome back to the final episode of this season of Biomes. My name is Dr. Rui Robertson and I have the pleasure of speaking with the leading human microbiome researchers in the world to learn what is going on in their labs and in their minds and bring all of that exciting research to your ears and to your guts through this podcast, Biomes. We've had some fascinating discussions so far in this season about the microbiomes within us and around us, from fermented foods to cancer microbiomes to gut fungi and to microbes in the International Space Station with some of the leading experts in and this final episode of the season is no different. This week I speak with Professor Brett Finley of the University of British Columbia. Professor Finley is originally an expert in intestinal infections and is one of the pioneers of gut microbiome research and its role in childhood asthma amongst various other diseases. I speak with him about the influence of the gut microbiome on our immune responses to infection and how this interaction may influence our susceptibility to immune-mediated disorders and infections, including the potential influence for COVID. Professor Finley, along with Dr. Bill Moan, is also one of the scientific co-founders of Microbiome Insights, whom sponsor this season of Biomes and provide end-to-end -end microbiome sequencing and bioinformatics services. Between the two of them, they have published more than 600 peer-reviewed papers and they provide key scientific guidance to the Microbiome Insights team. As always, Microbiome Insights is providing free study consultations to all Biomes listeners. So to find out more, go to microbiomeinsights.com and get in touch with the team to tell them that you are listening to the podcast. Brett, thanks very much for, for agreeing to have a chat. Uh, it's great to talk to you um, about your work in, in the microbiome field um, and all of your work kind of over the last few decades, I suppose. But can you maybe start off, tell us a little bit about your background, because you started off in biochemistry and then your years as kind of a, an infection biologist, and then you've kind of since moved into more kind of commensal microbiomes and how they, they impact health. So give us a little career background and how you got to where you are right now. Well, you're right. I did my degrees in biochemistry. Ironically, never even took a microbiology course. And, um, but when I was in graduate school, I ended up working on microbes, the pili and conjugated bacteria. And just fell in love with the whole concept of microbiology and things. So then I did a postdoc at Stanford, went to a person's lab named Stanley Falco, who was the godfather of the microbial pathogenesis field. And he studied how bacteria cause disease. And this is right at the beginning of the whole recombinant DNA revolution where we could finally clone genes and sequence genes and things that we couldn't do before, pulling us further away from biochemistry. So th and then I came back to Vancouver, where I've been there ever since. And the vast majority of my career has been spent studying how bacteria cause disease. This is mainly E. coli, pathogenic E. coli and salmonella and how they actually 
manipulate the host cells and inject funky molecules in that rearrange the immune system and everything else and reprogram these cells. And then the way the microbiome came onto the horizon is that around 20, I guess over a decade ago now, um, we were at a lab retreat. And one of the things the lab retreat is we have drinking and brainstorming sessions. And um, we had one of these and someone says, well, what about all those other microbes that are in the gut? You know, and this is long before um, it was called normal flora back then. And really we all sort of knew that we were, there were all these microbes there, but no one had any clue what they did, if anything. And this is just in the days when you could then start to um, use degenerate PCR primers and clone out 16S sequences one at a time. And you could sequence 20 or 30 of these things and get a snapshot of the microbes that might be there. So we sobered up, came back from the retreat, and we wanted to have a look at what happened to the microbes during diarrhea because we were studying diarrhea. And, um, and then we found some, we started to do that. And of course they changed, which was quite interesting. Um, and then one of the people in my lab did a really interesting experiment, Ben Willing, where he basically said, we knew there was these mice that were resistant to infections and others that were susceptible to infections. And he said, again, this is pre-fecal transfers really, but he did a fecal transfer, what we now know as a fecal transfer. And he put the feces from these resistant mice into susceptible mice and um, they became more resistant just by doing a fecal transfer. And of course, it works the other way too. You can make them more sick with, with susceptible animal feces. That plus the other experiment we realized is that we worked on Salmonella typhimurium because this causes a typhoid-like fever in mice. When you and I swallowed Salmonella typhimurium, we get diarrhea, gastroenteritis, completely different disease. And so we and others found that if you pretreated mice with antibiotics, especially streptomycin, you then got, instead of getting a typhoid-like systemic disease mice, you got diarrhea or gastroenteritis. Just by an antibiotic change, you completely changed the outcome of the disease. And it was those two things that really made me sit up and realize these microbes are doing something there. And so that's when we really started to um, get into the world of microbiome. As I said, it was called Pomo Flora back then, about 2005, 2006. And we published a paper showing that, you know, the microbes change during infection and they, they, they affect infection. And then we're off to the races. And, um, and I was quite interested in this. And then the next big turn in the lab came when my wife was a pediatrician. We were um, sitting around dinner one night and I was telling her all these cool things about changing the microbiota with antibiotics and you could change diarrhea. And she sort of said, just out of nowhere, said, you know, Brett, kids that get antibiotics in first year life have higher rates of asthma. I'm thinking, asthma, that's lung inflammation. What could that possibly have to do with antibiotics in the gut? And so then I went back to the library and um, as every guy knows, wives are always right, even though I didn't believe her at the time. <laughs> um, and yes, lo and behold, um, there was lots of papers sort of with smoking guns about microbes might be involved in asthma, but there's no one that done any experiments in microbes in asthma. And so I convinced the young graduate student, Shannon Russell, to say, well, there's a mouse asthma model next door. Why don't we just try treating these mice with antibiotics and see if that changes asthma? And lo and behold, it, it, it drastically changed them. And um, that got us in the whole world of early life microbes and asthma. And that really opened the floodgates to many, many different things. And as you know, we've been involved in malnutrition of microbes. We have some fascinating stuff going on. We've got brain axes and Parkinson's and all these other things now. And it also drove me to write couple of books on this subject because it was such a fascinating area and you know I now say that if you take the top 10 reasons why you're going to die nine of those 10 have microbes involved in it yeah. and only one is obviously microbes and that's pneumonia and influenza 
So it's, it's been an amazing um, run in terms of how these microbes, and it's really put microbiology back to the forefront of life. Ironically, I can't get anyone in the lab to work on pathogenesis anymore. They all want to do <laughs> microbiology and all into gut and brain axis. That's what, so that's what the really exciting one is for, for everyone. So, so yeah, it's been, it's been a wonderful career um, trajectory, and I've been very fortunate to you know, benefit from it. It sounds like you're doing a, doing a bit of everything. But if, if we can go back to kind of the, the original, you kind know, of your start of your career, when you're talking about, um, you know, pathology of infections and, and how we become sick from, a, from an invading pathogen, I suppose there's a, a three-way link between the host, the human, the pathogen itself, and also that there's this microbiome link as well. So you did a lot of work on how the pathogens affect the host or infect the host. But what role do those other microbes play in infection or how do other commensal microbes either prevent or enhance uh, um, an infection from, from causing disease in a human? Yeah, I mean, the role of the host, the pathogen and the microbiome, I call it the unholy trinity. <laughs> you know, how the three work together. And you're right, all three play a role. Um, defining mechanisms has been slow. Um, Initially, I once said, they called it competitive exclusion. It's just, if the microbes are already crowded in the gut, pathogen can't come in and can't establish a hold. You take an antibody to clear out the competition, now pathogen come in. And that does hold true for some things, but we're now learning the mechanisms are much more sophisticated than that. And there's actually um, germ warfare going on between microbes in the gut. They're trying to kill each other off with type six secretion systems and things. Um, they're sensing everyone. They're cross feeding each other. We just have a paper coming out now where two microbes, one makes one thing, another one uses, which then feeds the other one back again something else, and they're cross feeding each other. So it's a very sophisticated community interaction. And I think you hit the nail on the head unraveling the details. We haven't got them all yet. Um, you know. Um, before, when we had one pathogen, you could take the microbe and put it in cell culture where they're just human cells and look at that. Now, when you're adding, you know, a trillion other microbes to confuse the picture, it is very confusing. So we don't really have all the good answers yet, but I think we're finding that they are very sophisticated. Like many, these pathogens key off of the presence of other microbes to realize they're now in the gut. They're looking for molecules. Like, okay, I'm in the gut now. I'm going to do whatever. Yeah. So yeah. it's a it's a it's a fascinating interaction that we just don't understand fully yet. Yeah, I'm sure there's a million pathways that that work there. But I suppose if you translate that to humans and human infection, that could be the reason that certain people are more susceptible to infections than other. They're, it mightn't just be that their immune systems themselves are different, but it could be that their commensal microbiomes are different. And that is what allowing a pathogen to proliferate, I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, the analogy I always use, you know, if uh, 100 people go to a wedding and they all have the same amount of potato salad, why do 20 get food poisoning and 80 don't or whatever, right? It's not because of a dose. And I think we now realize that is probably a lot to do with the microbiome. Host immune system done to some sense, maybe prior exposure. But I think we, we, we traditionally didn't realize the significant role the microbiome played. And as you know, every person's microbiome is different. And these microbes coming into the gut are each going to experience a different world of microbes um, depending on the person. And so sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. So, and so in that other link then between the commensal microbiome and the immune system, how does that work in, in terms of infection? Because we're learning more now that the, the gut microbiome, the commensal microbiome trains subsections of the immune system in early life to help protect against um, infections later on. So how does that kind of early life microbiome training of the immune system affect our susceptibility to infection later on? 
Yeah, I mean, I spent my life bashing immunologists. No offense to immunologists, but I'd say, you know, you know, Henry White lysozyme and ovalbumin are not world killers. Why don't you study something useful kind of thing? But I've had to eat my words because immunologists were probably the first other than microbiologists to embrace the microbiome. Um, we worked with um, some people who were in the early days looking at, you know, T helper cells and the role of the microbiome, down Littman, for example. And what we've come to realize that, yes, indeed, you're right, the microbes do train the immune system. And we, we kind of knew that from germ-free mice, mice with no microbes in them, they didn't, their immune system developed normally. And then I think the lessons we learned with early life and asthma and how microbes shape, you know, TH1, TH2 type responses, et cetera. So um, again, I, we don't understand all the ways. There are a few mechanisms that are being defined, you know, short-chain fatty acids and things, but we know that you need this microbes early in life to shape how your immune systems feel, allergic or not. And then we also know later in life, depending on the microbes you have, um, how your immune system functions and responds. And there, I mean, the immune system is sampling microbes all the time. Now, most of those are harmless, but that's, they're also sampling them. And so they're aware of them. And so they're queuing off of them. Um, and so, yeah, I think the whole microbiome immunology you know, it's, it's, it's ironic, you go to immunology meetings now, half of it is microbiome, uh, you know, because we, they realize these things play a real big part. And it also helps explain a lot of the puzzles of immunology previously, why, um, you know, some mouse strains behave differently, for example, and even results between different labs. It's, of course, it's because of the microbiome in these particular mice and things. So, you know, there's been even suggestions that we should go back and redo all the mouse immunology literature with a mouse with the standardized microbiome um, kind of thing, because we, we now realize they, they play a huge role. And we just had no clue up until a few years ago about this. Yeah. And you mentioned then kind of the, the influence of antibiotics in this whole unholy trinity or these kind of interactions. So, you know, antibiotics were amazing when they were discovered. They, you know, have prolonged lives of people. They've, you know, prevented us all dying from infections. But we, we think that there's probably these really poor effects of them, uh, side effects uh, in the long term when they're overused, especially. So maybe you can talk to us a little bit about that, about the evidence behind that for the maybe short and long term effects of um, overuse of anti antibiotics on the gut microbiome. Yeah, I, I think you're completely right. I mean, antibiotics were probably the biggest, probably the biggest medical breakthrough we had in the last century. I mean, countless lives when they came on about World War II or something, you know, and and and, and these were wonder drugs. Drug, I mean, infections normally killed you. You now take a pill, you're just fine. I mean, that's just, that was just stunning when they came online. But like all things, you know, they they were too good. And so we used them like crazy. We put them into animals to help grow supplements. If you had a viral cold, well, it's taken an antibacterial agent. It can't hurt, right? And that's been the philosophy. And we now know, I mean, I guess my, my take on antibiotics, that they still are wonderful drugs. You, everyone's aware of the antimicrobial resistance issues of overuse. But um, I think what we didn't previously realize is, is the drastic impact they have on the microbiome. So when you take an antibiotic for a particular infection, that antibiotic is not just killing the infectious agent, it's wiping out, it's carpet bombing so many other microbes because no antibiotic targets one microbe. They, they target groups at best and often just everything. And so, yes, when you take antibiotics, you have a big effect on the microbiome. This has an effect on us. And one example I, that, that I've been personally involved in is in BC, the province we live in, we've had a major quest to decrease antibiotic use. 
And in kids one to two years of age, over the last 10 years, we've done a really good job in decreasing antibiotic use. Pediatricians have been very good. Now, asthma takes about five years to kick in. And if our theory of the early microbiome is important and asthma is right, then about five years later, we should see a drop in asthma rates in BC in kids. They've now reached age five. And this is exactly what we see. And so we worked with others around the province, and we basically looked at the microbes that were being changed to these antibiotics. And yes, indeed, these antibiotics are drastically affecting the microbes. And you have a much higher chance, more antibiotic courses you take of having asthma. And we could see the antibiotic damage in the microbes. And um, basically, that based on this, we've, we've dropped asthma rates about 25%, which in BC represents 1,200 kids a year that, that don't get asthma now because they're not getting the antibiotics that destroy the early life microbes. And antibiotics, we all know that they increase obesity rates, for example, um, anxiety, depression, um, various brain issues are, are exacerbated by antibiotic use. So with antibiotics, yes, indeed, if you have a life-threatening um, infection, you take the antibiotics. I mean, don't be crazy. It'll save your life. But also, they're not perfectly harmless. And I think between antimicrobial resistance and antimicrobial use, I think that you've got to really think about where you use antibiotics, use them sparingly and as needed. And the area I would like to see much more research in is microbial repair post-antibiotics. Hmm. So we have to take an antibiotic in a young kid, how can we give them back the microbes they need so they don't go on to get asthma or obesity type thing? And there's really little research in that area right now. And so what would that answer be? That was going to be my, my question. How do you kind of prevent those, those negative effects? I mean, there's been some interesting data to show, or at least some kind of people hypothesizing that if you take a stool sample maybe prior to antibiotics, and freeze it and then take your antibiotic course and you can reconstitute yourself with a kind of self-fecal transplant. Do you see that being a, a realistic um, treatment in the future? Is the effect of one course of antibiotics bad enough that kids should be doing that or adults should be doing that? Or how do you see these things playing out? Yeah, that's pretty drastic. Banking uh, <laughs> your poo in your own freezer. Um, when you take an antibiotic, your microbes do get hit. Um, but then they kind of come back to about where, just about where they were. If you take another course of antibiotics, they go further away, but they don't come quite back so close. And another course of antibiotics go down here. So by the time, so basically the more course of antibiotics, the further from normal you become. So one course doesn't usually distort it too much. Where you do see the big effects is in the young kids. Hmm. And um, so, you know, we've been working on, you know, can we, test which microbes the kids have, and if they're missing these certain key microbes, could we add them back? Almost a probiotic concept, or if they took an antibiotic, could you add them back? This is certainly not commercial yet, so in the meantime, I think one needs to think about if it's your kid, you know, exposing them to dogs, blend play outside, all the other ways that you acquire your microbes back, again, healthy diet type things, to try and encourage them back. But generally speaking, in, in older people, um, you know, not young kids, one course is not too harmful. Repeated courses certainly are. In young kids, one is harmful, and I think we have to rethink that and ideally come with ways of, you know, testing a kid post-antibiotics or you're missing these things, and we can give them back some, and I think that will be in the future. Same as when a kid is born, they'll get their genome sequence, they'll also get their microbiome sequence, and they'll think, oh, you're missing these things. We should think about replenishing these some way. Mm. I think you've, you've talked about that theory a lot in your, your book, Let Them Eat Dirt, which is 
you know, taking a lot of the evidence from these really fascinating studies showing that kids that grow up on farms or grow up with pets or grow up in bigger households are less likely to have these longer term illnesses like asthma, like allergies. So, you know, what, what is happening there and, and, and why is that? What are the kind of mechanisms behind that? What do we know apart from these kind of observational studies in, in these children or, or why is that happening that they, these kids are more protected if they grow up in a farm or grow up with a dog, for example? Yeah, you're right. All those things add about a 25% increase if you had a C-section or if you don't live on a farm or if you don't breastfeed or if you take antibiotics to your asthma rates and about a 30% chance your obesity rates. So the question, what are they doing? And what I think most science is pointing with is that as you develop earlier in life, a normal delivery is a vaginal birth, which is gross as heck, but it's also the best present a mother ever gives her kid because they bull of some vaginal and fecal microbes. We're designed as organisms to experience that. And that's when you get the first microbes that are involved in breaking down breast milk and things like this. And so C-section, you miss that. And so you don't get the same microbes. You get more like skin microbes from your mother and things than, than those microbes. And the immune system is just programmed to cue off. This is a normal event. And when that normal event doesn't happen, we know the immune system skews more towards an allergic type um, response. So that then affects how you then respond to asthma later in life. With respect to obesity and things, you know, again, these microbes are different. And um, we, we know that you can do fecal transfers from obese animals into thin animals and transfer the phenotype of obesity. So these kids, again, have this birth microbial scar where the microbes aren't what they normally should be normally, and so they're not the same. And I think a lot of this goes back to this whole society for the last 125 years has been on a war against microbes. So that's sanitation, hygiene, antibiotics, vaccines. And this has done wonders for infectious disease. I mean, it's gone like this in most developed countries. But what's going the other way? Asthma, obesity, diabetes, you know, um, ADHD, autism, you, you, IBD, and they're all going crazy. And the question is, well, what's that about? And we really think now that in our quest to get rid of microbes that cause disease, we're also getting rid of other microbes. And we're getting less and less diverse in our microbes. And we're all living in cities. So, so think about this. Think about... Um, single mother has a kid. She lives on the 25th floor of a condo somewhere and um, she has to have a C-section medically because some women do. She gets mastitis, can't breastfeed. Um, the daycare is next door. Pets aren't allowed in the building. The playground is on the concrete um, roof. Now picture a kid living 300 years ago. I mean, they're, they're covered in feces. They're out there playing all the time. Um, yes, there's infectious disease, and there's a good chance they will die of an infection. But those that don't have a very different microbial exposure than the one we get today. And I think our biggest concern is that each generation we get cleaner and cleaner. We get less of the microbes that we actually evolved with. And we're taking a key piece of our evolution out of this equation by living the way we do in our big cities with, with sanitized everything and don't get dirty type thing. And I think we're also doing an amazing experiment right now, which is COVID. And, um, you, know, um, you know, people are not contacting anyone else. You know, they're staying inside. They're eating different food than they did. And so there's all the micro labs around the world are ramped up to see what is this huge experiment in humanity doing to our microbes. And everything we know, it's not good because we, we're basically living more clean. And we all know that is not a good way to do it in terms of microbial exposure. So I'm guessing we're going to see some long-term COVID damage. You know, people don't travel anymore. And so we're not swapping the microbes we used to. So I think we'll see some interesting things come out of that too. 
Well, that was going to be my next question is, you know that these, these clear links between, you know, microbial exposure in early life and some of these chronic illnesses like asthma and IBD and these other ones that you've mentioned. But what do we know about infection now? We're in the middle of a pandemic. It's likely going to happen in the future. Do we know what, how susceptible we are to infections later in life based on our microbial exposure in early life? Or is that, is that too soon to tell? With respect to the COVID, it's too soon to sell. There are studies coming out showing that people with COVID have different microbes and people that didn't get COVID type thing. There's not a lot of GI involvement, so I'm not quite sure how that's working. I guess the data is just too early in that sense. Um, but I think, you know, getting back, to, it's not just early in life you want to look after your microbiome. I mean, the other book I wrote on the whole body microbiome is all about aging and healthy microbes as you get older. And a lot of that is dependent on how you spent your life and setting up for the aging process and um, all that you do during life to basically have a good microbiome as you start to age. And so I, I do worry what COVID is going to do to everyone's microbiome. Um, we're going to suddenly realize, oh, that was, not, that was not good for us. We've suddenly gone into isolation and not getting new microbes all the time. We'll see. You know, people that are locked down in the elder care places, you know, they're not getting any microbes. Um, how's that going to affect them type thing? So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, well, as, as you mentioned, kind of there's this interesting exchange of, of microbes between people. And we're learning more about that now that we are kind of exchanging microbes with each other. And you have proposed that, that some of these uh, non-communicable diseases might actually be communicable, uh, communicable uh, in a sense, because of our shared microbiomes. And that, you know, transferring microbes between each other may actually transfer risk of, of some of these diseases. Maybe you can Tell us a little bit about that and how that might be happening. Yeah, last year I published that. It's very provocative, um, you know, and it's certainly, so by definition, communicable diseases, those are infectious diseases. Those are both bacterial and viral, all the ones you know, and non-communicable by definition are diseases that you, you don't get through microbes. So this is obesity and diabetes and Alzheimer's and dementia and all the, all the ones that we think is non-microbial. But as I've hinted at, they're now more and more becoming a microbial volvent. And people with these non-communicable diseases, their microbes are dysbiotic. They're not normal. They're different than people that don't have those diseases. That doesn't say that's causing the disease, um, but it, it, it's hinting that there maybe there are microbes in there. What we've also learned for many of the diseases, like obesity, like diabetes, like inflammatory bowel disease, um, like autism, you can transfer the phenotype of that disease through the feces, just by doing fecal transfers. We know this in animal models. We can take the feces from a diseased person, a normal person, put it in animals and trigger that disease or not. Even in Parkinson's, you can do these kinds of things. And so that implies you can actually transfer the microbes and this phenotype of causing the disease. And so um, the other thing is that when you look at disease incidence, for example, if you have an obese friend, you have a 40% chance, higher chance of becoming obese yourself the rates of inflammatory bowel disease of spouses with IBD, so not genetic related, are much higher than they should be if they um, just um, on a normal population base, for example. People living in India have very low rates of inflammatory bowel disease. They move to North America. They now have the highest um, rate of, of, of IBD based on ethnicity of, of any group you look at. What changed? They didn't genetically change when they moved to North America or the UK. Um, 
So there's all these smoking guns that, um, you know, maybe you could transfer it. So to try and prove it, I use something that, going back to my roots in infectious diseases, it's called Koch's postulate. So Robert Koch was a very famous microbiologist that showed that many diseases are caused by microbes. And to do that, he set up a set of rules, he called them Koch's postulates. So the first rule is if microbe is potentially causing that disease, you have to be able to isolate it out of the diseased person and not out of the normal people. So let's call dysbiotic microbiota the, the pathogen for this case. So yes, we can isolate these things out of them. We can grow them because you should grow this pathogen. And then in Cox postulates, you then put the pathogen in its normal mice and cause disease. We do that when you take the dysbiotic microbiome from IBD or Parkinson's or whatever, put it down, will you cause disease? And the final part is you then have to re-isolate that pathogen out of it. And of course, we can re-isolate the dysbiotic microbiome. So in a sense, this basically proves that, that some of these non-communal diseases are caused by these dysbiotic microbiomes. The implications are very profound in how we think about things, because when you're thinking about the obesity, you know, epidemic that's occurring worldwide, we're not really thinking about microbes and microbe transfer. Um, another really interesting example is they, they did a big study on 2,000 um, American military people who were stationed for two years in either high or low BMI type environments, and they did a bunch of controls, and of course, their weight went the way you would expect it to go um, if, if this theory is right. Now, there might be other confounding factors, but they tried to sort out what people were eating and things. So I think it's just another way of looking at these things. And when we're thinking about these non-communal diseases, um, you know, things like cardiovascular disease, you got to wonder, are these, you know, the sharing between spouses of these microbes actually contributing to disease? Or are these ways of potentially preventing diseases, decreasing them by watching what microbes you get exposed to? So time will tell if it's true, but um, it's a really heretical concept. And I've certainly got a lot of interest. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Testing the waters. So, well, how much does that actually happen, say, within a household or within your close friends? How, or what types of microbes do you share? How, how many of your microbes do you share? Or how kind of susceptible is your microbiome to change from your close contacts, I suppose? Yeah, that's how you transmit it. I think that's the biggest reason. that we're, We've really not found any genetic, human genetic factors that say you're going to have this microbe or not that microbe type thing. Of course, there's some immune things, but for the most part, it's all who you're contacting with. If you have an identical sibling that lives on the other side of the world, your microbiome is going to be much closer to the person you're living with than that identical sibling somewhere else in the world. It's all environment. When you kiss someone, you transfer 80 million microbes. Um, living, so you can, and there was a really neat study, they looked at a little island in the South Pacific, they figure out who is married to, to who, just looking at their microbiomes, just because they were similar. You could tell, you know, who, who, who was living with, with, I don't think they included one night stands, but um, you can sort of figure out, you can sort of figure out who you're, who you're spending your time with um, just by the microbial composition. So yes, household transmission is huge. Now, also you live in the same house, you're eating the same things. Um, so that comes a, you know, but you're sharing the pets, et cetera. So yeah, it's all environmental. Genetics play virtually no, no role in which microbes you have and don't have. So, what I'm interested in is what, what the kind of future this is because uh, of this field is because at the moment it's all very descriptive. We know what microbes live here and there. There's these associations between all these diseases. But what do you see the future first off in terms of treatments or therapies? How do we kind of restore this diversity that we've lost? Or what are the realistic 
uh, outcomes that we can expect if we really want to reverse this trend? Yeah, I think there's medical and then there's sort of just the rest of the world. I mean, first off, you know, each person thinking how they live, incorporating their microbes into it, diet, exercise, all these things is, is a major way of, of, you know, alternating these things. But medically, I think we're going to see really quite frankly a revolution in, in how you actually treat some of these diseases. And we've seen the efficacy of fecal transfers in, in cluster and difficile, for example, where you get 90% plus cure rates doing a fecal transfer. I think it's a great proof of concept. I don't think fecal transfers will be a mainstay of medicine. They're rapidly moving beyond this, where you'd have eight or 10 or 12 microbes growing up in a lab as a mixture, take that pill into a person. They're unlike probiotics, they're from the gut and they're for the gut. Um, I think probiotics, you know, it's, it's gotten a rather bad name because, you know, the, they're an interesting idea, but they're not doing it right. They're not taking microbes from the gut and mixed communities and putting back in. So I think we'll see a whole new generation of microbial um, mixtures. They call them live biotherapeutic products you can actually take to treat certain things. And there's companies involved in a few of them that are actually moving this along quite nicely. They're in phase three trials now of doing this. And they're, they're going to be a medicine um, through the FDA type licensing and proving they have to medically work and we'll, we will see this. Then I think the next generation after that is what you hinted at earlier in our discussions is what are they actually doing? And when you think of how microbes interface with us, it's not the microbes that do it, it's the molecules they make. So I think this whole quest to identify the metabolites or whatever these microbes are producing, you know, we've seen short-chain fatty acids, one example, but I think there's many molecules that can be mined. And once we start to figure those out, then that's easy because then they're just drugs and we know how to develop drugs really well. And we will get these microbial molecule drugs that I think will then be used um, in medicine to do these things. And this will be, let me just give you one example. Um, cardiovascular disease, you know, atherosclerosis. Um, we know the microbes play a key role in breaking down basically red meat. And if you don't eat microbes, you don't get atherosclerosis, heart attacks and strokes type thing. And we know in mice, that if you drug those microbial pathways that cause this first breakdown, you can feed the mice all the red meat they want and they will never ever get cardiovascular disease. So, you know, I can see where that can come quite quickly where you drug the bugs so that then you go out and have your steak that night kind of thing. You just shut down that pathway and then they can't break it down. So you don't get, you basically don't get um, cardiovascular disease. So I think it's going to really change how we think about things. Others examples is brain disease and mind diet, um, which is basically an Alzheimer's, uh, which is Mediterranean diet. You follow the mind diet, you have about a 50% less chance of getting Alzheimer's. And we have a paper that's about to come out now on Parkinson's, that if you follow this, this diet, um, basically you can delay Parkinson's onset in women by over 17 years and men by at least six years just by following this diet. Now, there is no other treatment or prevention in Parkinson's period. Um, that, 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 you know, and so I think you know, it's, it's, it's not traditional medicine, but I think it's very profound in the ability to control disease. And I think it's become much more mainstay as we figure it all out. That's amazing. And, and how much, aside from kind of actual treatments and, or diets and everything, but how much will kind of technology play in this? Because the whole reason the kind of field of the microbiome has flourished in the last few years is because of these massive developments in sequencing technologies. Where do you see that developing? Will there be kind of at-home self 
testing of your own gut microbiome, your own kind of metabolome, or, or how will that advance in the next few years in order to create those kind of personalized approaches to your own gut? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, it's due to sequencing we now sort of start to begin to understand the microbiome because before you couldn't grow it. If you streak your feces out, very few will grow. So by, but by sequencing, we don't have to grow them. That's where the whole mainstay has been. I see microbial sequencing um, much like genome sequencing, the whole personalized medicine concept. And that, you know, you'll have your genome sequenced. I also think you can get your microbiome sequenced when they're trying to look for susceptibility diseases, markers and things. I mean, I, I speak at several personalized medicine type conferences and they're all talking about these GWAS studies in the human genomes. I say, look guys, you're barking up the wrong tree. Only 1% of the DNA in and on a homo sapien is homo sapien. The other 99% of that DNA is microbial. Why are you working at less than 1% of the, of the genes that are in this person? They of course don't like to hear this, but um, you know, I think, you know, when you look at adverse drug reactions, they've been very poor at tracking down human genes that give adverse drug reactions. That's because when you take a drug, who breaks it down? The microbes. Who forms the adverse secondary metabolites cause these reactions? The microbes do. So, you know, I think they're just plain wrong in terms of what they're looking at. They're missing the obvious that um, these microbes play a central part in us. And this whole field of personalized medicine, I mean, you and I are 99.99% genetically identical at a homo sapien level. Our microbes are clearly different. So where are the differences between you and I? It's not our genes, it's the microbial genes that make us different. And so I think we need to really embrace that in the whole personalized medicine. As for a home kit that immediately sequences it, um, maybe, um, I'm not sure we even need to do this. As we figure out what microbes are doing, we can look for a few particular ones that might be at risk for a certain thing. You know, you can, you can test for that pretty easily, um, I would think. But I would think that um, you know, getting a microbiome test will be as routine as getting a throat swab for a strep throat, for example, in the future, because sequencing can be so cheap. You just take a fecal swab, a throat swab, and even in analyzing what infections you have, um, it's easier just to sequence all, just do a throat swab and sequence it rather than do you know, um, a strep throat test, for example. So I think we'll see that come online as the sequencing gets so much cheaper in the future. And, and say that does happen, say we are able to, sequence our microbiome really quickly, we find that it is, you know, at a certain state. How easy it, is it to make those long-term changes to a microbiome, especially a gut microbiome? Because we know that, you know, if, if you live the same lifestyle with generally the same diet and the same kind of exercise regime and the same people around you, as we've spoken about, your microbiome tends to remain pretty stable until you get older and it'll kind of drop off. So, Say we do reach that kind of future, how easy is it going to be to change long-term? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's actually already pretty easy to get your microbiome sequenced. It's not overnight, but you can get it pretty, done pretty quickly and, and a good idea. So then the question is, well, what do you do with that information? That's the hard part. And you're right, we, it is a pretty stable ecosystem. And basically you have to think of it as you're trying to disrupt an ecosystem. And so that's why when you take a lactobacillus from a vagina or a bifidobacterium and you swallow it at 10 billion a day or whatever, it doesn't stick. Um, you don't just, probiotics don't stick. Um, they're not built for that environment. So you have to think, well, how do I make the environment more you know, susceptible to these, receiving these microbes? 
And we already know diet is a major part of it. You can change diet and you will change your microbes quite quickly. I think in terms of the, we've learned that adding live microbes to people often, ironically, you pre-treatment with an antibiotic, which clears up the competition, allows these new, better ones to stay. And say inflammatory bowel disease, when your gut's on fire, you not only add antibiotics, you also add anti-inflammatory. So tone the inflammation down so these new guys can get a hold to start producing the anti-inflammatories they need to then establish it. And then I also think you need to come in with communities. You can't just come in with a single microbe. You come in with mixtures of communities and they're built for the place you want them to go. They're from there and they're just going back there and they know how to grow there. And so we'll see that. But I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges right now is how do we correct the microbiome once we figure out it is wrong. And, um, and yeah, I, we're, we're playing with those answers. I don't think we have the definitive ones yet. <laughs> we'll see what happens, I guess. So do the experiments. <laughs> yeah, to do the experiments, I suppose. But if we lose them, you know, I was talking on a previous episode to Maria Dominguez-Bello, and she's doing this fascinating work about preserving our microbes. You know, like we preserve kind of seeds in kind of a, in a seed vault, you know, in case of world extinction because of nuclear war or something. So how easy is it then once we lose these microbes to kind of reintroduce them back into humans, be it in ourselves or at, at a population level? What, once they're gone, are they gone? Or uh, like kind of, you know, species becoming extinct in, in, in other ecosystems? Or can we, can we have hope that they will be reintroduced? Um. I think that's a really, really scary and important point. I must admit, as I worry that, you know, my grandkids, the, the microbes that they can actually, that are available to them are going to be very different than the ones that were available to me when I was a kid, for example. And so um, I think those, those kind of, they're very worrisome. You know, each generation, we know we're getting less and less diverse microbial. That's bad in terms of ecosystems. You need the diversity type things. And, um, you know, I, th I think you know, putting them in vaults and trying to, you know, save for a few generations, you know, we should do that. But I worry that it's going to be just too late when we suddenly realize, oh, geez, we've just gotten rid of a key microbe that's been part of evolution and it's nowhere to be found in the world anymore. We can't do this anymore. Um, so I, you know, there's been some studies showing that, um, you know, that after about two or three generations, if you don't eat fiber, you lose the fiber producing microbes kind of thing. They go extinct. We don't eat fiber anymore compared to what we used to and how we evolved as a species. And so we're losing those things. So, um, yeah, I'm very concerned about this. And I don't know what the, what the best answer is other than try and make our microbiome that we have. I mean, we're all living as long as we ever have. So it's not like humanity's in trouble right now. Humanity's doing great. I mean, we're doing too well, actually. We're way over in the world. <laughs> we you know, lifespan's COVID. great. So, you know, um, you, know, you know, what's the last few microbes? We seem to be doing just fine without them. But I think where we do see this reflected is in the whole increase of non-communicable diseases. Mm. Um, and, you know, as, as being, a, when you look around, what, what you know, that causes 70% of the world's diseases. And, you know, it's due to our imbalance in microbes. And so I think if you want to think about, yeah, we can live to 80, but I wouldn't mind living a little bit healthy till then. You know, that's when the microbes got to come into the picture. So we have to do anything we can to protect these things. And instead of thinking them, there's only about 100 microbes that cause disease in people. And, you know, instead of thinking them as the enemies, they're our friends. They're built to live with us. This is the world we evolved in. Why are we trying to, it's like trying to, well, the Earth is too polluted, so let's upset a station on Mars. I mean, that's just plain stupid. And <laughs> that's what I worry about this whole microbial assault thing is, is 
Now, COVID set us back many years because now we're going back to the whole, um, you know, fright of infections. And so I worry about that. You know, we're going to release a documentary, Let Them Eat Dirt, telling everyone, let your kid get out there and get all these microbes. And then COVID hit. Now we're scared to release it because it sort of goes against, you know, you know what we're experiencing these days. So it's a balance, but I really think we have to think about these microbes as being part of us instead of being the enemy we have to get rid of. So that's it. Season two of Biomes is done. Finito. Uh, And I'd like to thank everyone who has listened. I've personally really enjoyed this season and the fascinating discussions that I've been lucky to have with some of the most brilliant minds in the field. If you've enjoyed it, please rate the podcast on Apple, share it with any of your friends and family, leave a review, send it to anyone who might be interested. And if there is any interest, you never know, there could be a season three. Uh, Special thanks to the sponsors of the second season, Microbiome Insights. They have a great team who provide all the services you need to conduct a microbiome study, whether you're in academia or industry or public health. So head over to their website, microbiomeinsights.com, to find out more. Thanks very much for me. Stay safe, and hopefully I'll be back with some more biomes soon.